1: Well, a lawsuit that's almost been 10 years in the making has finally hit the courts. Apple is being sued by some of its competitors and consumers over changes it made back in 2006 and 2007 to its iTunes software. The plaintiffs say that those changes in part hurt competition. Also at issue is the fact that Apple did not allow music to be downloaded from competing music stores. And in their minds, uh, the plaintiffs, they held um, Apple did a monopoly. Joining us to figure out uh, how this will all play out in court, Eric Clemens is a Wharton Professor of Operations and Information Management. He joins us here in the studio. And uh, with us on the phone, Andrea Matwishan, who is a law professor at Princeton University and a former FTC senior policy advisor. Eric, great to have you here in the studio. Andrea, thanks for coming on the phone with us.
0: Good to be here.
1: Thanks. Uh, I guess, Eric, I'll start with you. The, one of the, the, the interesting things about the, this case is that, obviously, this has been 10 years in the, <laughs> in the works. Uh, not that we should be surprised by the, the length of time, but w- when you look at the core of this case uh, in reviewing it, where does Apple stand in this? Because, obviously, a lot of people have talked about the, the sharing of music or not sharing of music between platforms. It was a big issue for quite some time. Uh, obviously, not as much now, but but where does Apple stand with this whole situation?
0: I think my colleague, who is a lawyer, yeah. will, will have her own opinion on this, but the case really hinges on a single concept, which is duty to deal. Duty to deal uh, determines when a competitor needs to provide services to its own uh, competitors and when refusing to provide those services does or does not uh, constitute anti-competitive monopoly behavior. Uh, it looks to me, and I've, I've got my own reasoning on this, but it looks to me like Apple is probably safe on the current definition of duty to deal, which I'd be happy to explain by examples. And then I think it would be great if, um, if a real lawyer interpreted it as well.
1: Uh, and Andrea, I will let you go from there. What is your uh, belief in terms of this case right now and where does Apple stand?
2: Sure. So, sorry, Apple's, uh, the main question in terms of Apple's behavior from a strict legal standpoint relates to whether the conduct at issue that the plaintiffs are raising, specifically these updates that were pushed down to user iPods, whether they were intended as primarily anti-competitive behavior or whether there was a legitimate business justification rooted in trying to provide superior services to consumers in line with reasonable business conduct. So this kind of an analysis from a legal antitrust standpoint would hinge on this question of intent and a reasonableness type of analysis, not a, a per se Uh, analysis. And so the rule of reason that would would be uh, applied by a, a court here would look at the justification that Apple alleges for these particular updates that the consumers in this case allege were driven by an undesirable, consumer-harming, anti-competitive motivation.
1: Now, we'll, we'll talk about duty-to-deal in just a second, but but obviously one of the aspects of that is the videotape that was presented in court of Steve Jobs from several years ago uh, of basically a deposition he made and, and in part why they did what they did, correct? This is for me? Yes, Andrew.
2: Yes, yes. So uh, the challenge with video depositions, particularly when the individual is not merely unable to appear at trial, but in this case deceased, is the inability to cross-examine and to present rebuttal evidence from that same individual. And so that turns into a bit of a procedural hitch, undoubtedly. And really, in this case, the videotape could cut either way. We are talking about a jury in Oakland, which is, of course, a hotbed of technology and engagement, that whole region of Silicon Valley and the adjacent areas. And yet there's also a concern that Apple was perhaps in other cases and other litigation ongoing uh, Trying to limit coaching of its employees and engaging in conduct that may be perceived to be anti competitive or violative of the right to employee mobility, et cetera. So there's this kind of overarching concern about the big picture of Apple's behavior, but whether those concerns are appropriately overlaid onto these particular issues at bar with this particular product and this particular business conduct. That's something that the the judge and the jury will need to parse through to keep the factual analysis strictly constrained in this case to these particular issues in this case.
1: Now, I I guess one of the the justifications that Steve Jobs made for uh, these moves was uh, the, the potential of hacking. Uh, that I, I that I read about was was brought up. Is, is that something that that obviously it is a concern, great concern now. Obviously, it was a concern back then. But but is it a justifiable reason for making these moves? Andrea? Uh,
2: well, so most of my research focuses precisely on corporate information security behavior. So that, uh, uh, certainly these are paramount concerns for every company. The question, and this is a strategy that I was actually surprised I didn't see coming from the plaintiff as aggressively as I might have expected. The question would turn on the, the technical reality of those particular updates. Were they indeed improving in a reasonable sense the security of the systems that they were being pushed to? Or is the language of security being used just as this patina to justify some other type of code behavior? But certainly it is a fact that Apple, as every major corporation and every stock exchange and every bank, is faced by formidable information security threats. So the business decision, in part, does hinge on To what extent do you build products in a way to limit the exposure of your consumers to malicious attackers versus the uh, streamlining and transparency of all of the processes happening on the device? And so Apple struck the balance in this particular way, and the question is, was that update really motivated on the merits of the code? by security updates, or was there perhaps some other anti-competitive intent that lurked underneath?
1: And I guess this goes back to what you were talking a little bit with the duty to deal, is that you have that responsibility, Eric, and did they take that responsibility, or were they trying to push that aside in, in just from a strictly financial, monetary uh, you know, perspective of their company?
0: Let me back up a little bit. Okay. I think that the, uh, the concept of duty-to-deal has gotten more and more restrictive. Uh, there is not a presumption of duty-to-deal. And mm-hmm. I'd like to start with a, an example that's really very simple and then take a few that are just slightly more complicated. Okay. Okay, so imagine it's 1920, and no one is listening to radio. And because no one is listening, there are no advertisers. Mm-hmm. Because there are no advertisers, there is no programming because there is no programming, there are no listeners, nobody's buying radios or listening to radios. How would you jumpstart that? Now RCA did have the first radio station with commercials, and they also made radios. And imagine that RCA gave out radios free with no tuner, really inexpensive. <laughs> the only station they could pick up is RCA.
1: Yeah.
0: And that indeed launches the industry. Does RCA have a duty to make more expensive technology to support other stations? Of course, they don't. Mm-hmm. And that's just a really simple uh, hypothetical. Uh, duty to deal is certainly more complicated, but you don't have an obligation to support competitors just to help them deal, help them operate. Uh, my favorite example is, uh, it makes me think of a Donovan song. First there is a mountain, then there is no mountain, then there is. There's a, a case that involves three a resort, a large resort that owns three mountains in Aspen, a small resort that owned one. Yeah. They sold combined tickets. Then the the guy who owned three mountains, decided he could kill and take over the guy who owned only one mountain, by refusing to deal with him. Yeah. The decision the courts reached was, in fact, his only reason to renege was anti-competitive. And if your only reason to renege is anti-competitive, then you have a duty to continue to deal. Uh, Michael Katz, an economist who was both uh, an assistant attorney general with the Department of Justice and chief economist for the FCC, uh, was even more restrictive. And he felt that if you owe your current dominant position uh, to people who you have cooperated with, and you then choose to terminate the cooperation for purely anti-competitive reasons, then uh, you have a duty to deal, and that is, in fact, illegal behavior. So if you sort of put the three of them together, you don't automatically have a duty to deal. Yeah. Apple didn't reach its dominant position by working with other software sure, providers. Sure, absolutely. So terminate, they weren't terminating an existing agreement. I think that it, it's a very aggressive reading of duty to deal to come after Apple and say they should have provided services to competitors. If Apple can argue credibly that um, they were obligated by their agreement with music owners... To enforce digital rights management, which is, I think, one of the arguments they uh-huh. made, and if hackers could somehow uh, render those DRM digital rights management uh, uh, softwares inoperable, then Apple was a, between a rock and a hard place. They had obligations to music vendors; they had um, to they had to sell music. Yep. I don't think they violated agreements that Katz, uh, Dr. Katz, would would call anti-competitive. I I think they're safe.
1: Well, and Andrea, obviously part of this, as Eric mentioned, is the relationship that Apple had with the music companies uh, in terms of providing all of these songs for their consumers, that they had that business relationship in place. And I guess the question then is— which carries more weight the relationship the business relationship they had with uh with the cons- uh, with uh, the record companies or what their responsibility was to the to the industry as a whole
2: so certainly from a strictly contractual standpoint the bilateral relationship the one to one relationships that apple would have with First, the music industry licensing the content, and second, the end-user license agreements between Apple and the individual consumers who possessed those iPods. Those are going to be certainly key facts that this litigation uh, implicates. Now, one of the interesting uh, twists here that antitrust litigation does consider is whether the particular circumstances involve a bit of a historical accident. And I think Apple does have grounds to argue that as one of the first or perhaps even the first mover in the a la carte song music business model, it was performing a sort of path-breaking function in the industry and that as such the dynamics between it and the recording uh, industry uh, required kid gloves and that there was a, a special dynamic happening because of this historical accident of that era that we're talking about. And this is a very old litigation at this point. with a decade under its, its belt. Um, so it, it would have a, a 10 on its birthday cake, and you know that, <laughs> that's dragging on at that point. Um, And so that question of historical accident and the other benefits that may have accrued to the business space as a whole and to consumers as a whole, these are things that courts will consider sometimes in analysis of antitrust obligations. Now, the benefit to consumers is an interesting question to raise because another piece of this, which came out in some of the testimony recently, but I would be interested to hear unpacked further, was the allegation that not only did the functionality to play files from other music providers get disabled, but that the files themselves were disappearing. Now... Though there may be a a reasonable business justification in security conduct for that, there is a concern there with respect to a company modifying files on a consumer possessed device. So you'll hearken back to the Sony uh, legal troubles of 2005 to 7 or so when they engaged in um, a type of digital rights management. Um, update that opened a security hole on user systems. There's this question of where the boundary is between protecting content and exposing users to further harm or damage because of your uh, alleged security or DRM enforcing conduct. So those issues are unresolved law, and that boundary line of where corporate unauthorized access begins and when IP protection should give way to the integrity of consumer products and consumer control over their owned possessions, even when it's digital content that we're talking about, that is still undetermined, open law, and it's tangentially implicated by this case, but it's where the future of litigation is going to go into these kinds of analyses of technology conduct.
1: Eric? Yeah, I'd like to build
0: a on one thing that, that my colleague has, has just mentioned, and that is uh, Sherman Section 2, our, our anti-monopoly, antitrust uh, law in the United States, does provide an exemption uh, for historical accident. She's exactly right. So if you mm-hmm. end up with a monopoly by accident, uh, that is not illegal. Right. If you take actions to defend that monopoly or extend that monopoly, that really is illegal. And that brings us back to her comment uh, when we started the show, which is if you can argue that Apple's actions were intended solely to defend a monopoly, uh, then Apple's defense collapses. If you can argue that uh, there was a legitimate technical reason for them, and you can argue that their initial monopoly position or near monopoly position was achieved by accident and not illegal intent, then I think the current reading of duty to deal uh, does indeed protect Apple. So just to summarize, having a monopoly position by accident is indeed legal. Defending it is not. Uh, Duty to deal doesn't obligate Apple to enable its competitors But if the actions it took with the releases were solely intent, re-releases, were solely intended to protect a monopoly position, no matter how legally obtained, that probably is legally actionable. I I hope I got that right uh, as a computer scientist
1: masquerading as a lawyer for the day. (laughs) Andrea, I'll let you pick up on that. Yeah, that's
2: that's exactly how I would have explained it. And that's, Precisely was an issue, those two updates that the plaintiff is pointing to. Now, uh, footnote, the uh, removal of the lead plaintiff because of a, a problem with the individual not actually possessing the iPod yeah. is <laughs> yeah. uh, a lawyer's chuckle and kind of a facepalm situation because uh, it, for... All of my attorney friends and and myself, we were uh, slightly stunned that that verification of actual possession of the relevant device hadn't been done more thoroughly by plaintiff's counsel. Uh, But precisely those two updates, if Apple can demonstrate that those two updates were primarily driven by security concerns and legitimate business interests to improve the quality of the product in order to ensure better consumer service in connection with the iPods, that is a really uphill battle for the plaintiff to face, and it's highly unlikely that the plaintiff will be able to prevail as long as there was a legitimate business reason that was not primarily anti-competitive.
1: Well, and, and I guess the, then, as you said, it, it is an uphill battle. But but is is there a, a a line of of the the information that we're talking about here that could potentially lead us to that belief, Andrea?
2: So in in my opinion, the strongest argument that the plaintiff could make, uh, assuming that they can finally find a successful lead plaintiff, which they're now on their third, I think, um, and uh, assuming that that the facts in the class remain certified – um, then in that case, I would attack this as a plaintiff's attorney, which I'm not. Um, I would attack this on the, the merits of the code in the update itself. So as I mentioned previously, if it was a decision to delete actively delete files yeah. rather than simply not run files, uh, that could be, you know, we could make an argument that maybe that's um, strangely aggressive security conduct. Um, I would attack on the functionality of the code in those updates and look for a basis to allege that even though the code was called a security update and um, as every corporate lawyer will will tell you you can call something whatever you want it doesn't change the content of what the, the the contractual agreement or the coding question will do in in technical terms labels are meaningless but if this was really just an anti-competitive code update that was masquerading as a security feature. Uh, That would be technically the battle of the experts that I would push for as plaintiff's counsel and try to raise doubt with the jury and the finder of fact here um, that the fact in this case, more likely yes than no indicate that the behavior was anti-competitive.
0: If I were the defense expert, which I am not, I would argue that it's a very aggressive reading of um, duty to deal, considering the uh, opinions of uh, uh, Professor Katz, both with the Department of Justice and the FCC. So if I would argue it's a very aggressive reading of duty to deal, I would need to be very, very explicit that they were taking actions solely to defend a monopoly legally obtained. And that, I think, is going to be a very difficult uh, case for the plaintiffs to make. You'd need to argue that there was no benefit to the consumer. There was no absence of security Mm -hmm. provided. There was no obligation uh, to record uh, owners, software, uh, content owners for Apple to take their actions. And I think that there is enough ambiguity in the case that it would be difficult to get a Section t- uh, Sherman Section 2 violation, deliberate defense of a monopoly, and I think it would be difficult to argue duty to deal.
1: I, w- I would think that being able to prove uh, that they were protecting a monopoly would be exceptionally hard to do uh, it, because of the fact is we were just talking here you you can honestly sit back and look at this and, and see both both avenues as being a, a very strong possibility f- for being the case am i am i not right andrea uh
2: in in this particular fact pattern i i think that the from my standpoint as an outsider not being privy to all of the facts in the case it's a tough argument to make that there wasn't a legitimate business purpose, particularly when we're dealing with um, sections of antitrust law, such as the Clayton Act, we do an intent analysis in many cases. And so demonstrating intent would need to um, uh, be a a situation where evidence was demonstrated that um, there was an absence of Legitimate business concern, an absence of a genuine stream of emails around security concerns, an absence of uh, talking about optimizations in the product, and that merely the uh, presence of these competitors was the driving force um, in the planning and execution of this update that was pushed
1: out. Andrea, I have to leave it there. Thank you very much for joining us on the phone. Eric, thanks for coming into the studio. Great uh, uh, conversation, and we'll see how this all plays out uh, in the next uh, several days. Uh, Andrea Matishwan, who is a law professor at Princeton, Eric Clemens, Wharton Professor of Operations and Information Management.
0: For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.